communities, wildlife and successful conservation projects. In this podcast series, we explore how these three things are vitally connected. I'm Gordon Buchanan and thanks for listening to Beneath the Baobab from JAMA International. This time I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Adam Hart. Adam's a scientist, conservationist, broadcaster and he's based at the University of Gloucestershire here in the UK. Adam is also an entomologist, that's an insect expert of course, and a professor of science communication which means he's been dedicating a lot of his life not only to some amazing wildlife and conservation initiatives, but also to making sure that we all understand them better. He's co-director of a scientific research programme in South Africa, which we'll hear more about today. But Adam has such a diverse background that we have much more to cover. This time I'm going to be delving into his experiences of studying herbivores, grasslands and their wider ecosystems and hearing about what happened when he stepped into the public debate around poaching, trophy hunting and sustainable use. I can't wait to meet him. So let's talk conservation with Adam Hart beneath the Baobab. Adam, good morning. Good morning. The one thing I'm always fascinated by, I just I want to know where people are. I'm just north of Gloucester, south of Tewkesbury, so I'm out in the Gloucestershire countryside. I can see uh, woodlands and hills just about from my window here. A green woodpecker is particularly enthusiastic oh, wow. this morning, so we've had that jumping around. I had a muntjac barking as well um, earlier. Quite a decent bird garden, uh, sort of garden list that I've had uh, here so far. We had red kites circling over. I've got a raven flying over occasionally. So, yeah, there's some there's some good stuff around here. Oh, you're making me jealous. I've got like a, a, gray, a gray squirrel and a pigeon. So, having read a, a lot about you, I'm interested to know how you ended up working in this line of conservation. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting one. I mean, I, I, I've always been interested in, in animals, nature, the natural world. You know, my earliest memories are kind of, rooting around under stones and things and rock pooling around the, the Devon coast. So I've always kind of had that that love of the natural world. And then I, I studied zoology at Cambridge and I was really interested in mammals, um, particularly, well, mammals and birds that live together. So I was really interested in social mammals, things like meerkats and so on. And, and I, I wanted to do a PhD in that area and I started applying and, and indeed getting offered a few. And then I happened to be in Sheffield. The friend of mine happened to be there and he was working in a lab and he was studying social insects. And so I needed a bit of work. I went along, did a bit of, did a bit of work there, and, and the guy that was running the lab sort of was talking to me and just said like, "Why, why do you want to? Why do you want to study all these questions in mammals? You should, you can do all the same cool, interesting things, but you can look at honeybees and leaf cutting ants and and then and then he sort of uh, he, sort, <laughs> he sort of won me over by saying, you know, you'll get massive sample sizes, and if you study birds, you have to get up at four in the morning. <laughs> and and, and then I said, at the time, that wasn't the most attractive option, so I, I sort of became an entomologist by accident in a way. And then when I moved to the University of Gloucestershire, I became much more into ecology and sort of, I guess, started calling myself an ecologist, really. You've sort of seemed to this sort of holistic approach that, of course, it is all interconnected. Ecology, zoology, conservation, insects, mammals, birds, it is all part of the, the natural world, that system. But I'm interested to hear more about your visit to Zambia in 2001, because that was quite a change of focus for you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So I mean, I was just coming to the end of my PhD at that point. So I'd, I'd studied 
ecology, zoology at Cambridge. I'd done some conservation science. You know, I was, I thought, pretty well informed on this stuff. You know, I was into it. I'd watched pretty much every Attenborough program going since the age of about two. You know, it was all over this stuff. And, and yeah, finally had the chance to go to Africa. A very good friend of mine's family um, from there. So he went out to Malawi and his dad had a house on a lake. I think I was expecting to land off the plane and sort of be herds of eland moving around and impala jumping around everywhere. And, and and actually, that's not what I saw. My abiding memories of Malawi, apart from, you know, the lake's very beautiful and the landscape's very beautiful, but the smell of charcoal. There were huge numbers of, of AIDS-related funerals. They were right in the grip of, of a massive crisis there at that point and really didn't see any wildlife. There were a couple of hippos bimbling around the lake, causing some problems. Went snorkeling there and hardly saw any of the famous cichlids. You know, it was a real kind of depauperate landscape in terms of the wildlife that I was hoping for. And then we arrived at the gates of the family farm in Zambia. And, and then, you know, this was what I was imagining, right? We go through the gates and there's a kudu standing there and then you know we drove through and bumped a big load of eland and then there was some impala jumping around and some zebra and we went to the camp and there's a python and big still possibly one of the biggest rock pythons i've ever seen being dragged out of the accommodation i was about to be in you know as a member there it was like this was amazing insects everywhere obviously that was africa you were expecting that was what i was expecting yeah but it was behind a fence it was a strange thing because they kept calling it the farm and i couldn't really see any farming I kind of said, you know, once, you know, you talk about the farm, you know, would you farm? And they said, oh, we grow a few bits and pieces here and there. But, you know, otherwise it's like it's the wildlife. And and it was a real kind of sort of a half an hour of patient explanation as to how the wildlife or the farm. And it all makes total sense, especially when you're in the landscape, you know, because the reason I hadn't seen any wildlife in the journey in is because that wildlife had been replaced. The habitat had been replaced. The, the, the woods and forests had been chopped down, just as they have around outside of my window. There was no intrinsic value for wildlife, but there was for farming and, and agriculture. But inside the fence, they were able to monetize the wildlife there, and they were able to do that by selling it to hunters. And, and all of this was was new to me. I, I, you know, and I'd studied this stuff. I thought, <laughs> I thought I knew about this stuff. I didn't. I mean, the logic of it is cast iron, right? It, it makes absolute sense. It was much more difficult, I think, to spin around to the idea that actually, you know, people were paying to do this, but. Of course, without people paying to do that, the land around me wouldn't have looked the way it did. And when you say paying to do this, do you mean whether it was a hunting reserve? Yeah, it was a hunting property. Yeah, in fact, there was a, an American guy there at the time that I was staying. He was a bow hunter. I think they had tourists that came through as well. They had a few lodges and stuff. It was a very mixed use. They did grow a few things around the edges as well. But yeah, it was it was a business model and, and it was working. No, just that, that description sort of reminds me of my very first experience of traveling anywhere. When it, this was sort of in 1990, so kind of long time ago in a very different world. But I went to Africa for the first time, flew to Sierra Leone. And like you, I'd been brought up by wildlife documentaries, mostly sort of Attenborough documentaries. And I thought that when you stepped off of the plane, it would probably be in a, a clearing in the jungle and you'd have to sort of, you know, kick the monkeys off of your, your baggage and you collect them. And in reality, in Sierra Leone, you travel for a day before you get to anything that looks like a, a wild, a wild landscape. And that, that continues, you know, I have to sort of manage my expectations now because I'll go to, I remember I went to Sri Lanka for the first time. You're driving through a sea of humanity, and I was like, "Where is, where is the wild? Where is is nature?" When you get to the national park, that's that's where it is, and that's protected. So that's why the wildlife were there. But it's interesting to hear about your experiences on the on the farm. That you know, this was not a, a a national park. This was a place that was being protected and preserved because. 
people wanting to go there and, and hunt those animals. Yeah, I think if you've been you know, brought up within that, that environment, uh, or the environment in the UK particularly, you know, during the 80s and 90s, with, with the sort of prevailing kind of narratives that were going on, that, that is a, a strange thing to have come across. And of course, because a lot of people find it you know, abhorrent, actually, they don't tend to make a big fuss about it. So you don't tend to hear too much about it. And, and actually, you know, you look through old textbooks and there'll be lots of stuff in there and people knew about it, obviously, but, but there was no big kind of thing. And I think what really changed that here was was Cecil the Lion in 2015 and you can see it I mean I've done an analysis of, of media here in the UK and you can see that, that you know trophy hunting is hardly mentioned really and sustainable use actually never really comes up and if it is it's often in a kind of chin stroking like oh it's kind of interesting we didn't know that sort of way Cecil the Lion happens and there's a tectonic shift in terms of, of how those narratives and it becomes overwhelmingly negative and you end up with this very prevailing idea that actually that first of all, that this system doesn't work, which is going to be news to an awful lot of people <laughs> and an awful lot of habitat, but also that it, that it's intrinsically wrong and that it's something we, we should we should stop. And so back then, in 2001, you were ahead of the curve if you realised at that point that this is a sustainable, workable, progressive and productive model of actually protecting wildlife so that they can be, be hunted. Yeah, and I mean, once I started reading a lot more around it, this is the system in sort of Zambia where, where this farm was, and then I, I sort of learned about the campfire system in Zimbabwe as it was coming through there. And then I didn't really, weirdly enough, actually get into South Africa that much, but which is curious because it's the sort of centre of this kind of activity, really until we started going down there for the field courses. And then it really starts to, to fall into place because you realise that there's an awful lot of land down there that support a vast quantity of wildlife. And in most cases, they're also supporting a wider ecology because if you're managing habitat for wildlife, for antelope species and things like that, well, you're kind of automatically also managing it for the birds and insects and everything else. And, the fun you know, the fungi, the bacterial relationships, you know, all of those ecological relationships have to be in place if you're going to have a productive sort of ecosystem around you. And, and when you see it working, it is, it is a fantastic thing. Right, the, re the real issue though, isn't it, that, that people say, oh, you, you know, people say to me, oh, you're a proponent of trophy hunting. It's like, well, no, not really. Like, you can't be a proponent of, of, of it. Like, what species are you talking about? Actually, what population are you talking about? What model are you talking about? What country are you talking about? Sometimes even what property are you talking about? You know, what, what specific patch of land? Because maybe it's not working so well there. You know, and, and this notion that you can be for and against, you know, like you say, it's just a, a woeful simplification that's actually really, really unhelpful yeah. in the bigger picture. Is that sort of the experience of young actors? academics sort of leaving university are they more aware sort of these days of these this, this type of model or is it sort of is this new new to them that actually sort of sustainable hunting it can be a good thing for wildlife certainly when we get students coming you know 18 19 year olds that i'm actually doing a study with a, a couple of students where we're going to look through university curricula textbooks and all this sort of stuff and see to what extent sustainable utilization in all of its guises you know trophy hunting being being one part of that is discussed within those courses because my gut feeling is that that it isn't widely discussed i think you know certainly from from sort of the, the twitter bubble you know i know that the other academics that take students to south africa for example are very heavily involved in their courses with sort of bringing these things in but i think you know a lot of people won't be but there's a sort of i think there is a, a wave of change or at least i hope there is and that's the purpose of this podcast i think is to sort of inform people and try and unpick these complex projects and sort of initiatives and basic principles that you actually if you want to preserve nature in a modern world it kind of has to pay its way everything has a cost and everything really has to 
to pay. There's just not enough wild space left on the planet for us to just let it be. Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the problems is a lot of people in certainly in this country are coming from a place where we have we, we have national parks, most of which are like pretty horrendous in terms of wildlife. You know, but we also have a, a whole system of local nature reserves. In fact, there's one about a mile and a half from me. It's just amazing, amazing place. But that's how we consider nature to be. And sometimes we get nature in our garden and we think it's lovely. You know, and a munchak deer comes down and nibbles your salad and it's it's an Instagram opportunity, right? But But people don't understand that when you translate that into other countries, many people are living in a much closer contact with wildlife potentially and with wildlife that's potentially harmful. You know, an elephant comes in and eats your, your salad garden, you're starving that year. And that's if you survive because many people do get killed by these animals every year. And, and again, very rarely reported. You know, my phone pings constantly with reports of somebody being eaten by a lion, somebody being taken by a tiger, somebody being crushed by an elephant. And it's it's heartbreaking when you start totaling this up and you realise that that the lies people live are very different. And I think that's one of the problems. We tend to translate what we see inevitably, right? It's the lens we have. And we, we look at the world through it and we think of things like national parks being a good thing. And we don't realize the history of national parks in parts of Southern Iowa, in many parts of the world, actually, um, of exclusion of, of sometimes atrocities actually um involved in, in the removal of local people we don't we don't know about those things they're not widely reported and we think that the way to conserve nature is like we do here with a big fence around it and you go in and drive around and look at it and it's like well first of all is that how we want the world to be i, I prefer a world where we can live in some sort of coexistence a lot of places yes we could keep some pristine areas but we can have a mix but secondly we have to think of the rights of the people involved and most conservation arguments and narratives that you see i think in this country very rarely mention people and you think actually if you keep mm -hmm. that mindset you'll conserve nothing trying to break through that is is a real is a real challenge because that's a big wall to break down we have a tremendous luxury in this country right we don't have to think most of us of the natural world as a resource it is, but we don't tend to think about it. We've either offloaded it to other people's responsibility. You know, people will fly. I can remember flying into Manchester Airport and you go over this massive quarry. I can't remember what it's called, but it's just an ugly scar on the landscape. And it's, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. Everyone's beating their chest about how terrible it is. And then going back to their house, which has been built from, you know, stone and gravel from the quarry. It, it, we're able to divorce ourselves from that. And we, we have that luxury. But if if you're in a nation where you live differently, where you're in a different state of development, or you're in a different environment where there simply isn't that much around, the infrastructure is too difficult to develop, the country's too vast, then you have to make use of what's around you. And if you can do that in a sustainable way, I don't see any problem with that. The, the thing is, I have people saying this to me sometimes, oh, you're advocating for this, so therefore you must hate animals. And it's like, <laughs> you can love the natural world and animals and understand that they're a resource at the same time but that's you know that's part i think of a bigger picture in terms of our disconnection with nature and ignorance of what you mentioned earlier about ecology and about how yeah. interconnected everything is and about our role in that we always tend to view the natural world as being this lovely thing and then there's us and it's like no we're part of this thing yeah and, and i definitely feel uh, in a big way responsible for kind of spreading fake news because <laughs> i've made wildlife documentaries for over 30 years now and you know we traveled as i said sort of all those years ago traveled through sierra leone which was kind of bereft of natural wealth but that program there was a few people in it but it was just wall-to-wall -wall animals and forests and the best of the the best of the best one of the sad things about this is that I think we're missing a trick because I think actually people would be interested and I think you could put together something really interesting that showed 
some of these conservation stories in, in, in the round, right, and, and the way that people are involved with them. But, I mean, I spoke to a commissioner a while ago when I was trying to sell them the idea that we could do something on, on sustainable use, actually, or, you know, conservation and people and stuff. And, and you could see them just disengaging from it. And they're going, but that's not about wildlife. And I said, no, it's about conservation. They went, no, no, conservation is about wildlife. And, you know, then you've got celebrities bottle feeding giraffes in an orphanage somewhere. And, and you look at that and you go, but that's not conservation. <laughs> and, and, and I think there's this idea that somehow people don't want to see the nuts and bolts and they don't want to get involved with the, the ugly issues that they want to see, you know, tiger cubs roaming around. And stuff. Of course they do. But actually, I think if you were to do it in a, in a good way, I think people would be very engaged. And I think they would sort of come away from it. Almost with that, I think you could really motivate people to take a much more sophisticated view of it if you were to put together something that that was watchable. You ignited a spark within me because I would love to make that kind of documentary. I've kind of been in different places, mostly in Africa, where fences become this sort of physically divisive (laughs) phenomenon. But good luck trying to sell that to any television commissioner because what they want is the sort of the, the glitz and the glamour or the sort of bottle-fed baby giraffes. The constant frustration for me is sort of where I live is sort of that lack of understanding and, and the ability to just take one viewpoint on it. And I think none more so than, you know, trophy hunting. But you've been very public about, you know, your thoughts on the sustainable use of wildlife and trophy, trophy hunting as, as part of that. There are a number of problems that we have to overcome. I think most people's idea is, and and this will certainly be characteristic of a few hunters, but actually not most, is that people have got a whole bunch of money and they sit in their house and go, you know, I'm going to go shoot me a lion. And they go and they shoot a lion and it gets skin and they bring it back. And that's the whole point of it. And, and, you know, and then they think, oh, well, I need a bigger lion. So they'll go and look for a bigger lion. And there's a senselessness to it. And I think we have to try to overcome, first of all, that stereotype, which doesn't actually equate to, to many of the people that I've met that, that do it, but also the, the fact that it is a senselessness. If, if you go and shoot an elephant, you will be supplying probably upwards of, what, three and a half thousand kilos of meat. That will feed a huge number of people. And this notion that, that an animal gets killed and is left to rot other than the, you know, the, the trophy, whatever it is, is utter nonsense, as, as anyone that's spent any time in these environments will, will know. The real problem that we have is active misinformation. Um, many of the campaigns out there are I think deliberately putting out information that is incorrect and that they know is incorrect as well. So we have the 3% myth, for example, the idea that only 3% of trophy hunting money gets down to the community. You know, that's, that's actually a misreading of a paper. The paper itself shows that more than 60% gets down. It's, it's a misreading that got into a report and is now shared widely and has been even reported in Parliament. Um, that's an utter fallacy. It's completely untrue. But underpinning all of this stuff, regardless, are two facts that we cannot battle against. And the first one is that this form of utilisation involves killing an animal. And for many people, that is a step too far. The fact that they probably are responsible for the death of many animals through their daily life is neither here nor there. It's the fact that an animal is killed. And the second problem relates directly to that, which is the fact that it is perceived that the animal is killed by someone who is enjoying the killing. You know, there's a whole load of philosophy that's been written about hunting and and so on. But if you actually speak to people, you realize that the actual act of killing is not what they're in for. It's the experience of stalking an animal, of being out there. And, you know, anyone that's ever stalked an animal, regardless of what you're carrying in your hand, whether it's a camera or a rifle or nothing, trying to get close to a large animal is, is an exciting, visceral 
ancient experience that gives you a connection to nature that is that is very very powerful and i think what people don't get perhaps is that motivation but equally my my argument is i actually don't really care what motivates someone the reality of this model is that to keep that habitat the way it is it has to pay more than some alternative land use and if someone's willing to come down and spend 50,000 to go and shoot a trophy kudu and three zebra and that means that it doesn't get converted to farmland and that that hunt is sustainable and that it's done in an ethical way right that it's done in a way that minimizes suffering and so on and that the meat is used i don't care at the point of pulling the trigger what that guy is thinking or that woman is thinking some people are vehemently against all of it and you're never going to get to those people but some people will say oh, you know i'm against trophy hunting but i don't you know i'm not against culling for you know reasons of population control and you go okay so you know deer are a good example You've got you've got a lot of deer on a particular patch of land, and you, you have to remove some of them. You know how do you go about doing that? And, and they'll always sort of back themselves into a corner and say, "Well, you have to get professionals in." And, and you, I say, "Well, why do you need professionals?" And they say, "So so that they don't miss." And I said, "Like you've got to understand that most people that hunt are obsessed with this stuff. They spend a fortune on it. They spend every waking hour thinking about it and shooting and practicing. Like these people know what they're doing. Wh- wh- why not get them in and they'll pay?" And you can see them go, okay, yeah, well, maybe, but but they'll enjoy it. And I don't want anyone enjoying it. And you say, okay, so you want to pay someone to cull deer professionally, but you want them to be deeply unhappy about it. You don't want them to take it. And they'll, and they'll sort of realize the nonsense of it. But but that's the sort of thing. I mean, I, I was down in a reserve in South Africa that had a big place, non-hunting. And they had some cheetah there that needed supplementary feeding. That were, They were young. I had this conversation with one of the women down there about hunting, very much against hunting, hated it, hated the notion of trophy hunting and everything, like terrible. But then they had to go and feed the cheetah. Well, you know, we're having a chat. Ten minutes later, I hear the unmistakable report of a rifle followed by a thud. And she comes back beaming because she's just pulled off a perfect shot in an impala and these cheetah are going to eat. And she's against trophy hunting, but she's not against hunting. And she went from being, you know, kind of, you know, just every day. She was still buzzing about this an hour or so later. And I just found that really, you know, revealing in a way, because here is someone who was professionally culling an animal for a particularly strong conservation reason, but she wasn't doing it with a sad face. And it's this notion that somehow we can't kill animals, I think is very, very deep for some people. And that's fine, right? That's that's their personal choice. But unfortunately, if you then take that personal choice into the political arena into the conservation arena and you start using misinformation in order to put that argument forward you're going to cause harm and you know that's that that's the complexity of the the argument that we we have to try and put across and the the sort of walls that we have to break through i think twitter's a fairly dangerous place to go our social media with any any views on on anything do you think it's important that we have those discussions on online in, in that very public way I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think it is. And I think it is for a number of reasons. First of all, because these are important issues. And it's important that people at least have a chance to to see that there are maybe different ways of looking at things. And, and there's some information out there that's incorrect. So I think it's important from that perspective. I think it's also important sometimes because when you're having a discussion on Twitter, and we, we've there's, there's a few of us that have been involved in some quite hefty threads. There was about 50 or 60 people actively involved in, in both of them. And what was really interesting about those threads was that the people that we were discussing with, most of them were never going to change their minds. 
they're too emotionally and in some cases i'm guessing also financially invested in campaigns against this and and you know that's you're never going to reach them but what's interesting is that they give you a foil essentially for you to be able to to put arguments forward and you know at some point i was almost wondering whether some of these people were actually like you know <laughs> colleagues in disguise essentially trying to because they were they were setting up such amazing sort of uh, aunt sallies for us to knock down that it, that it almost felt like a it was a great sort of almost like a dialogue sort of form of, of argument where somebody's deliberately doing this devil's advocate thing, but they weren't, they were very genuine about it. But what you realize, and you, you know, you get DMs and the emails and stuff about it. Uh, lots of people are watching. They're not engaging with it. They're not, they're not liking things even. They're just watching and they're watching the backwards and forwards and they're seeing that there's more nuanced arguments. And, you know, you can influence people and you can reach people outside of the argument but that are watching the bystander, if you like. And I guess the other thing is, I think it empowers other people, colleagues and, and things to to get involved. You know, I could come up with a list of hundreds of, of conservation scientists who would uh, sign sign papers and sign things that, that say, you know, we shouldn't have these bans and that it's harmful. But very few of them at one point wanted to get involved in social media because it's a nightmare. The IUCN's stance on this, WWF's actually, but the international stance, this is not some weird left field thing that affects five or six properties somewhere in a far-flung country. This is a form of land management that affects millions of square kilometers, hundreds of thousands of, you know, thousands of communities and stuff. This is this is not some weird little little side argument that's of no interest. This is a predominant land use in some of these countries. And and I think it's important that people yeah, that people understand that, but it's it's yeah, it, it can be a very difficult thing. You have to have a thick skin on Twitter. Yeah, it's a way to have public discussions and debates that other people can see. But yeah, it's not for everyone, and I don't I don't blame anyone for not wanting to get involved with it. It's it's uh, yeah, it's it's not and, pleasant sometimes. I think in many ways you're a, bit of, a braver and more robust person than I am because I think when it comes, I've been asked in the past, and I've always sort of remains silent on quite a few issues not because i'm afraid to to give my opinion but i just don't want to have to put hours and hours and hours of my life justifying my views on something that some people will never ever understand but it's of course, what i'm taking from you is that if you stick to the facts if you stick to the evidence you're never going to be on the the, the back foot most of the collaborations and, and work that I've been doing over the last, what, 10 years nearly, have almost all of them have come about as a consequence of, of meeting people, if you like, on Twitter. It's been incredibly powerful for me from a professional basis, regardless of anything else, just, just in terms of networking and stuff. And I think that's, that's something that's often overlooked. But yeah, in terms of having, mm -hmm. if having reasoned debates, that's not always, not always the right forum. But in terms of having, having open conversations and being able to share information, yeah, and being able to say to someone when when they say, "Well, that's not true." I mean, I get called corrupt all the time. I'm a corrupt shill, apparently, and I've got all this money from Safari Club International and stuff. And and you start saying, "Well, oh, so is everyone? You know, are all these people corrupt?" Yes, they're all corrupt. And it's like, oh, "Okay, so yeah, we can see where we're going with this." You've got papers that are, are coming out with really solid data and you know good stuff, and, and they'll go, "Well, I don't believe it." And I was like, yeah, but it's been through the peer review process. And well, they're making it up. And it's like, right, okay, so they're corrupt too, right, okay. You know, and, and it's almost like if every, if every answer is a, that it's a conspiracy theory, you kind of know, you know what you're up against. Yeah. It's not what most people think is conservation. And that's, that's a problem. Yeah. The most annoying put down of the last sort of maybe five years is, is fake news because even if you present the evidence and the facts to people all they have to say is those two words and you realize that there's nowhere to go <laughs> with that off the back of sort of sustainable 
hunting. You know, in these conversations, we often focus on particular species, you know, elephants, lions, tigers, those sort of iconic animals. Quite often, those are the animals that I'm sent off to film because although those are the kind of the sort of headline grabbing animals. But you've got a kind of whole habitat view of conservation don't you i'm just looking out my window here and there's a there's a fairly large field um you could stick a predator fence around it and put a pride of lions in there and you could pump game into there and they would eat it it, and you'd conserve it because look i've got 10 lions say you know i started off with six and now i've got 10 that's conservation i've doubled you know double nearly doubled my lions and it's like well no because that's a field and it's an entirely artificial environment and that's what comes, I think, if you focus too much on a single species, it becomes just about that. What you have to be doing is thinking, okay, well, we want to have lions around, then we're going to need we're going to need habitat, and we're going to need a realistic home range for them. We're going to need exactly the sort of things that they need, and, and we don't want to be pumping game in every two minutes because ultimately that becomes too expensive and arguably unethical. So we need to make sure that we've got habitat that will support their food. Now, obviously, if we're supporting their food, we need the right plants in place, and suddenly in order to yeah sure your flagship thing is supporting lions but actually you're suddenly building up a much more balanced and 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 proper functional ecosystem and if you get that right you're going to end up with a situation where everything's self-sustaining and i think if i say to someone oh my god there's this amazing grasshopper that lives in this fabulous place in south africa and we really need to conserve it and i need millions of pounds people aren't going to be that engaged with it but if you tell them that there's white rhino there then suddenly you've got something that you can work with so i get that but we have to be looking at it from a, a landscape and habitat sort of perspective. Increasingly, what we're seeing as well, we talked about fences earlier, we're increasingly seeing sort of the smaller properties in South Africa and knocking fences down between them and producing bigger landscape areas and things. And and, and that can work too. You know, the place we take the students down to is, is a wonderful habitat because it's it's managed for herbivores and it is actively managed. You know, it's only 20 square miles, which is big for Britain, but not massive on an African scale. But it works. And when you go there, the bird life there is incredible. The amphibians, the reptiles, the insects. We, we do a, I do a, um, an entomological exercise where we go up and basically onto the back, you know, by the classrooms here. And we just wander out and we're in the bush and we take our sweep nets with us and we start netting out grasshoppers and crickets and seeing what sort of um, discovery curve we get. And from that, you can take a rough idea of how many species there are. And you know, literally half an acre, you've got 50, 60 different species of grasshopper. You know, that type of diversity is supporting an enormous diversity of birds. It's supporting an enormous diversity of soil invertebrates, which in turn support the diversity of something else and all of these interconnections. And I think if you if you take that habitat perspective, it starts to fall into place. And, you know, they actually get they get leopard moving through occasionally. There's brown hyena on the site. Now, these have come in. They're not been stocked. They've drifted in and they'll stay because of the 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 habitat that's around there. And so the people that you're talking about that you take out into the field, is that part of this volunteer program, South Africa in, in Combi, is it? Yeah, so there's um, so on this particular site that we work with, there's the Incombi Volunteer Program. They started doing educational trips, and it really took off. And lots of universities go down there and do university sort of field courses. And they realise that there's a real appetite for people to come back. They want to come back. There's also an appetite for people to come and get involved. And so there's this volunteer program where people can pay. 
and they'll stay on the reserve for you know usually a month or, or two they'll get involved with everyday activities they'll also get involved with the research programs which is what a colleague and i have, have helped them to develop down there that looks at things like management and they just kind of learn about how these systems work and and the idea being that they'll then go back and talk to their friends and you know you start spreading the message that actually you know there are different ways of doing things and and that this is an interesting way of doing it really interesting that there are you know there are people that are prepared to go to parts of the world to hunt there are people that want to go there to take photographs but there are people that are prepared to to pay money to take part in science so if effectively these areas that are supported by visitors like that they are they're they're businesses and that's what's enabled their preservation and their restoration yeah absolutely and without that income the land no longer functions do you think it is changing are we moving in the right direction i think we are i don't think i don't think it's necessarily changing well, nothing ever changes fast enough or big enough for a problem does it you know it's always slower than you want and, and less progress but i think i think we are slowly getting more messages out there. i think one of the problems is that we're not necessarily getting those messages in front of enough people and there's perhaps quite a lot of dis disjointed messaging that, that's involved with it. There's lots of people sort of whittling away at it, and that can be good, but at some point I think we need a bit more of a, a solid focus maybe. I used to do quite a lot of stuff with spiders, and what you'd always get articles that come out, wasps as well, and, and they used to be, your wasp story is basically wasps, they're all right that's it right and then at the end of it they'll go well actually ecologically they're very important said you know professor adam hart or whoever was was saying it and you get this sentence uh, and then you'd start getting a paragraph and then occasionally you'd get a little bit more and then sometimes you'd you'd get much higher up and then and then you'd get asked to write articles about how good they might be mm -hmm. and you see that sort of transition and I'm, i've noticed now i think with some of the stories that come out to do with hunting used to get the sentence at the bottom which you know for balance they would say well actually the iucn uh fully support, you know, say that it's an important thing and everything else but but now you can get a little bit more and a little bit more and occasionally get asked to write articles so i think we are seeing that coming out but yeah it's it's not not fast enough i mean really what yeah. we need is a, a, a flagship bbc series you know <laughs> looking looking at conservation as it really is yeah how we can take what is happening right now examine it and, and use that potentially as a model for us to work together. Because if if we're not, you know, my, my, my worry is, you know, I'm going to become a grandfather at some point, I, I assume, I hope, you know. And they'll say, you know, why is there only, why, why are there only lions and elephants in national parks? You know, and it's like, well, they used to live in other places, but we tried. But a bunch of people that don't live there decided that they didn't like the model that was being used to conserve them. And they used misinformation to pressurize people into changing and so, unfortunately, that land got converted into agriculture, and, and that's why. And they'll say, you know, well, what did you do to stop it, Granddad? <laughs> it's like, well, as much as I could. Yeah, if it really is literally just these isolated pockets of, of wilderness behind fences, you know, that is, that, is no, yeah. that is not a future that we want. No, that's a, it is a depressing view of the future of the wild, that actually that sort of everything exists behind, behind fences and, and that humans are kind of, you know, on the other side of that fence. And it is, it's got to be about coexistence and it's got about actually everyone i suppose everyone being on the same same page is how best to have a planet for the future i think anecdotally i've got probably one little story that maybe shows that things are moving in the right direction living in scotland in the past people maybe a couple of times a year people would say what are what are midges for 
and I would always have to go back to this. So, well, you know, you, they might be kind of bothersome and they might kind of ruin your kind of like your barbecue or your camping trip. But this is why they're useful. And funnily enough, I think it's been about eight years since anyone has asked me what midges are for. So maybe we're, maybe we're getting there. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're actually really useful as bird food, said wildlife cameraman Gordon Buchanan. But now you get higher up and a bit more, right? It's... Uh. Adam, thank you so much. Thanks for taking time to, to talk to me today and, and the best of luck with, with everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Now I'm delighted that we can hear a little from Adam's colleague from Incombi, Lynn McTavish. Lynn's father founded the programme at Incombi and she told us about her experiences of being a custodian of this amazing place. I am the reserve manager at Mankwe Wildlife Reserve in Kumbi Volunteer Programme. Mankwe was started 30 years ago by my dad. It's actually the buffer zone around an explosives factory and he was working there as an accountant and his first love has always been conservation so he thought it would make a perfect reserve. He approached management and they gave him the go-ahead and so he started to develop it. Um, at that stage, there were just a few animals here, some impalas and warthogs, things like that. And now we have 53 different species of large mammal, which we've reintroduced onto the land. We've also built dams and more road networks and camps. It's kind of a work in progress. I joined him 23 years ago and my son joined us five years ago. I had to find a way to generate an income for myself and support my two sons. That's when we started what I like to call sort of educational tourism. So it's not your mainstream tourism. It's aimed at educating young people about all aspects of ecology. So we started off with one university, and then that grew to two, and these universities book and come every year. They're all from the UK. And yeah, we currently have 13 universities running ecology field courses at Monkwe, and about three to 400 students come through Monkwe every year. So probably one of the best things about my job is being able to work with young people at that stage of life, giving them some sort of purpose, trying to get some more eco-warriors out there fighting for the planet. We teach them everything there is to know about managing a reserve and most importantly, managing a balanced ecosystem. You know, for example, the grasses, if you don't get the grasses right, then your animals are going to starve. Then we teach them, you know, all the other aspects of the ecosystem, whether it's birds, insects, trees, everything that makes a healthy ecosystem, reptiles, amphibians. So hopefully they walk away with a much better idea of, of what it takes to manage an ecosystem. I think just working alongside us, you know, um, coming across a poached animal, fires, we get bushfires coming through, they get to meet our anti-poaching team, they get to understand how financially expensive it is to to run a place like this, you know, um, there's a lot of things that people don't even consider, the sort of general point of view that things just pay for themselves and 
and that animals can just live happily ever after and somehow the money just comes along to repair fences and roads and maintain vehicles and pay salaries and hire helicopters and vets and, you know, all these huge expenses that we have every year. I don't know where people think the money comes from to, to pay for all of this. They realize that it's not the Lion King here, that South Africa is not just one big savanna filled with animals. You know, I've had to understand sustainable utilization to manage a large mammal population or you are going to get overgrazing, emaciation and, and death, especially when they're in a fenced area and they can't migrate to look for food or water, you have to supply that. As custodians of these animals, you are responsible to make sure that there's always enough food for them and there's always water and that they are safe. I'd like the rest of the world to understand that Africa is made up of many different countries and every country manages their wildlife differently. So, for example, in East Africa, the numbers of elephants are declining rapidly. But in Southern Africa, we actually have way too many elephants. And that's causing mass destruction of their habitat. I feel that the people living in those countries, either working with wildlife, living with wildlife, or uh, making a living from wildlife, should have a say in their management. Obviously, we all want to protect animals, but there's there's many different ways of, of protecting them. For example, protecting their habitat is probably more important than actually protecting the animal because if they destroy their habitat, every single animal in that ecosystem will eventually die. So sometimes it might be necessary to manage those populations before that happens. We often get judged about decisions that we have to make, maybe having to cull some animals in a drought or hunting on a very small scale to try and reduce a population, euthanizing an animal, dehorning rhinos is another one. You know, people have this misconception that we are making money from the animals. And I just want to ask those people, what have they actually done? You know, it's all very well to sit back and criticize conservationists that are having to make these hard decisions that they don't necessarily want to do. For example, we never, ever wanted to dehorn our rhinos. And because of that, we lost five to poachers. And now we have to do it because it's saving their lives. But I've been criticized and ridiculed for for taking that decision. That same person will not be out with me on the fence line in the freezing cold in the middle of the night or during a hailstorm or standing next to me when they smell the decaying rhino that they once loved in front of them or see one of their calves crying for their mother. These are all things that we we deal with on a daily basis and you know at least we are trying to do something. Discussing how we share and represent sustainable use and its complexities has made me think more about how the work I do in filmmaking can also contribute to a more nuanced view 
of places like Africa, where wildlife and people exist in much closer proximity than television and nature documentaries traditionally present. If you'd like to find out more about Adam's work and documentaries, you can check out the links in the show notes. We'll also put links in there for you to find out more about Nkombi, or you can visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international collaborations. Please make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app. JAMA International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, please do so with the hashtag beneath the beabub on social media or maybe just start a conversation with a friend. I'm Gordon Buchanan and you've been listening to Beneath the Beabub. <laughs>